This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and good evening. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, a show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Tunisia in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on your community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Evie Maguire and my producers tonight are Roderick Chambers and Lachlan Moffat-Gray. Coming up on the show, The Monthly has published a retrospective on Murdoch's career, looking at what the media will look like after his reign ends. The author of the piece, Richard Cook, goes into detail about Murdoch's craftsmanship style, his long career and his political view of the world. Tonight we will dissect Murdoch's influence on the media industry in Australia and look at the type of legacy he will leave on this ever-changing media landscape. Also coming up, political editor of The Guardian, Catherine Murphy, spoke with my wonderful co-host Peter Frey yesterday about her essay called On Disruption. If you want to hear the extended interview, you can catch it on the Fourth Estate podcast app. Catherine's essay is a memoir of sorts that uncovers the 24-7 media industry and looks at what the future holds for the chaotic world that is journalism. Now, we will also have time to cover Channel 7's controversial coverage of African crime in Victoria and Fairfax's criticism on the ABC. And if I find that there is even a little bit more time, I might put to the panel a question or two about Peter Toner's efficiency review of the public broadcasters ABC and SBS. Helping me dissect this fractured media world is in the studio, Josh Butler, senior reporter at 10 Daily. Hi, Josh. Hi. Carrie Fellner, investigative journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Evie. And on the line, we've got Corrine Podger, digital and mobile journalism lecturer at Melbourne University. And you're in the Southern Highlands of all places, am I right, Corrine? That's correct. I'm, I'm joining you from Mittagong. Talk about a place, a lovely place to do the Fourth Estate. So welcome to the show. Now, there is so much to discuss, so let's get cracking. Some call him a hometown hero, while others are less complimentary. Rupert Murdoch has shaped the media industry like no other. After a career that has spanned 65 years, it still doesn't look like he is going anywhere anytime soon. In the most recent The Monthly magazine, journalist Richard Cook takes a look at the life and career of a man whose retirement will possibly impact the news media industry as heavily as his life did. The piece is a good 11 pages long and paints the picture of a man who was the ultimate outsider but built the media system around him. Now I'm going to start off with a board question, Corrine. Do you think the nature of Australian journalism will change when Murdoch steps down? Well, as far as the Murdoch family and its empire goes, the way that the business has been managed in recent years, it does look like it's set to remain a family-run enterprise, whether it's headed by Lachlan and or James. Um, Are they likely to put any less pressure on competitors? Looking at how those two have run their respective parts of the business over time, probably not. Will they inherit their father's views on Brexit or Trump or the political landscape here in Australia? It's difficult to say. I think what we can say, and, and Catherine Murphy talked about this last night, is that we have a highly dichotomized media at the moment. And 
These function largely as echo chambers. We have audiences that, that choose not to expose themselves to views they don't really agree with. So I think what will be really interesting to see is whether there's um, movement from News Corp to participate, I guess, in wider calls for the media to create spaces for dialogue between people with strong views so that they can talk to each other, um, or whether we're likely to see um, a continuation of, of what we have at the moment, which is competing voices on all sides, let's say, um, shouting each other down. I mean, Carrie, what do you think? Uh, well, I think on that note, um, like, uh, you know, in a perfect world, I- I'd love to see, um, you know, a more sort of robust debate um, and robust views reflected within, um, you know, any one publication. But the- I feel like what we're seeing with the advent of digital and in this new era is that echo chamber effect is just becoming even stronger. Um, like with the online world, people just seem to, you know, we're seeing more extreme sort of voices um, getting stronger platforms. So uh, if anything, like I tend to think that it's going to head in the opposite direction. Um, but yeah, I suppose time will tell. I mean, Josh, following on from that point, Murdoch did build a lot of his empire in the 80s and 90s. Do you think it will be as successful as it was then after he passes? Do you mean like if, if it was to be restarted yeah. today? yeah. I, that's a really tough question. Um, I mean, the success that he had was in drawing together um, a whole massive network of 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 news. I guess um, you know he the the sort of empire spans you know print and TV and radio and you know now online and that sort of thing. Um, I, I think it would be much harder to replicate that success today, just because. The media, you know, the media as we look at it as some sort of like conglomerate, sort of analogous sort of lump, is so much more fragmented now. And I don't think it'd be as easy to sort of pull together all these different elements today if you were trying to do what he has done. But in saying that, I mean, to go to the question you asked previously, like how how would it change after he passes? I mean, I don't think it will change that much for a, for a while at least. I think in, you know once the next generation of journalists perhaps come in once the current generation of editors and senior journalists and that sort of thing move out, the ones that have been crafted in that sort of Rupert Murdoch image, they know what he wants. They know how, you know, those sort of papers and websites and TV stations are supposed to be run. Once those people move on perhaps in 10 years, 20 years, maybe even some of them, I think we will see those sort of publications maybe change and it will depend on, you know, whoever takes over after Rupert, how they sort of try to plan so to run things. Do but you think then that News Limited might change? I, I don't think it'll be kind of like a, a Lord of the Rings sort of thing where the, the tower in Mordor sort of falls <laughs> right. over and, you know, it all, it all changes. I think there will be change, but um, I don't think it's going to be like an overnight sort of thing, you know, Rupert's gone, this is how the new news cop is going to run. Like I said, you know, I'm not one of those people that sort of subscribes to the conspiracy theories around Rupert that every day he has got his hands in the in the front page of the Telegraph and the Courier Mail and, you know, he's the one choosing the headlines and whatever. But, you know, they have these networks of uh, editors and senior journalists and stuff that just know this is how we do a story at News Corp. This is how we do the front page. This is how we sell this sort of this type of story. But um, maybe once those people move on, it will change. But I don't, I don't see News Corp miraculously changing overnight when, once Rupert does sort of move on. I think, um, like, the broader pressures on the industry, um, if anything, with advertising revenue will have more of an impact on the future of mm. News Corp publications mm. than anything else. Like, I mean, I think what's interesting, like, you know, 10 years ago, Murdoch was in the press saying that he was confident about the survival of his publications. And then, like, this year or last year, he was, you know, suddenly... 
his whole attitude had changed quite dramatically and he was, um, you know, saying he was struggling to keep his empire viable. So, I mean, the fact that you've got a baron like him that's saying those kind of things is, um, yeah, quite telling, I would think. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because Cook says in the piece that he definitely, like, he he labels the style of journalism as craftsmanship. And I just following on from that point, I mean, do you agree with that sort of characterization? Do you think that he has dumbed down journalism? I like reading Cook's article, and it was a fantastic article. Uh, but I, I do tend to think that the sort of heavy criticism that News Corp sustains isn't necessarily fair if you're looking at their publications as a whole. Like they have some outstanding journalists there doing some really amazing work, particularly in investigations. Um, you look at people like Dan Box, um, like even Headley Thomas, his recent podcast. Um, so I think it's really quite unfair to tarnish um, all the journalists there with that brush. Like they're definitely in terms of their politics, um, they've got that particular brand. But I don't know that you can say that that's a reflection of every journalist that's working at those papers. What do you think, Corinne? Do you agree? Um, well, I, I agree with, with Kerry, actually, that, um, you know, one really needs to look at the broad range of that business. Um, you know, that, that we're, we're talking about something that includes Books, you know, book publishing, news, newspaper publishing, music and radio. Uh, it runs television stations. It has relationships with entertainment providers, etc. So, you know, and then across that full panoply, there are people who obviously take their jobs very, very seriously and are very, very good at what they do. Um, you know, so it's. A, I think it's a it's a comfortable criticism to say News Corp and really to, you know, what one needs to think about is. That's a very the newspaper publishing side of that, and the newspaper publishing side of that that perhaps um, irritates or is a thorn in the side of some of the liberal press uh, is a very small part of that, that business. That, that's a really good point. Like, I guess I think a really good illustration of that would be like you look at Sky News, um, and a lot of people like to sort of you know have a go at Sky News and that sort of thing. But you look at I guess the the split between their daytime coverage and what people like to call the Fox, you know, Sky News After Dark or the Foxification of Sky News. Like you've got in the daytime, you've got these journalists like uh, Kieran Gilbert and David Spears, who are like some of the best journalists going around. If you look at politics, but then after night, you know, at night time they have Mark Latham and they have Rowan Dean and they have you know these sort of uh, more. I'm trying to think of a very polite term here. <laughs> uh, partisan kind of. Honestly, hacks, but um, you know, then you look at you know the Daily Telegraph or the News Corp sort of papers, and you've got like you mentioned, you've got Dan Box, who's like one of the best journalists that's going around. Then you have Miranda Devine, who is very opinionated and very uh, right leaning on a lot of issues. Like there has to be a a split between what you look at on a purely sort of news value and what they do on an opinion sort of side of things. And I think a lot of the things that people have a go at News Corp for is they're leaning on opinion. But you look at the journalism they do, and it's you know it's undeniably some of the best journalism in the country. So, and in the world, I mean, yeah, you know, totally. I, I think we we need to keep in mind that News Corp, um, for example, owns the Times Literary Supplement, for instance. You know, it it's, um, looks after the Wall Street Journal. It's mm. um, where are we down here? It's you know it looks after Australian Golf Digest. It you know Donna <laughs> Hay. So. Yeah, I mean, The Sun and iterations of, of that internationally are just a, such a small part of the business. I think what will be interesting to see, you know, given what's been said about the difficulties of sustaining the news part of the business, is actually whether in 20 years' time News Corp includes uh, traditional newspapers as run at, at the moment. 
You're listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk journalism, and I'm Evie Maguire. Joining me this week is Josh Butler from 10 Daily, Carrie Fellner from the Sydney Morning Herald, and Corrine Podger, digital and mobile journalism lecturer at Melbourne University. Now, speaking of journalism in Australia, we had Catherine Murphy in the studio yesterday. She's political editor of The Guardian, and she's written an essay about the future of journalism. It's called On Disruption, and she dives deep headfirst into the 24-hour, seven-days-a-week news cycle. Now, Corrine, you were at the event last night at UTS where Catherine spoke to Peter Frey about the essay. I have to say the book, I've got it right here in the studio, but it's, it reminds me a little bit about the little book of Calm from Black Books. <laughs> I mean, what was it like at the event yesterday? And I guess, do you agree with what Catherine's saying? The, the event was terrific and it, it was great to hear actually that uh, Walkley Foundation recorded uh, the conversation between Catherine Murphy and Peter Frey and that will be available as a podcast on their website um, fairly soon. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely not a little book of calm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very it's a very intriguing and I think you know unusual personal take and personal perspective, uh, so a micro take on the macro disruption to the industry, and I found that really interesting. What resonated strongly with me um, because I've been made redundant myself, and I've you know friends with many journalists who've lost their jobs and seen so many good reporters lose their their jobs. Journalism is indeed in a fight for its life, and I, I really that really resonated with me. Um, Catherine specifically referred to uh, specialist fields like politics, which is where she is such a leader, uh, also science, education, and, and, and I'd add health and religion to that. Um, you know, we, we don't have as many specialists, and I think to have people who wade through all of the guff and pull out information and express it clearly... Uh, it's been really problematic, I think, for informed communities. Um, something that Catherine mentioned in relation to journalism um, was that she's not in favour of journalism as a voice of God. Um, you know, and what I've just said perhaps suggests that I am, um, but I'm not. But I am, you know, I am in favour of bringing more, more more voices into social discourse. But I think that there is a role for journalists as curators, as fact checkers, as investigators and as um, an appropriately named fourth estate to hold people in positions of power to account. Now, if that can be achieved by perhaps joining forces more often with the audience, then that moves aside from that voice of God. But, I, I, yeah, I felt that talk really um, put a personal spin on the value of the industry and what we, what we lose collectively um, when it's under threat. Well, she did make the point in her essay that the 24-hour news cycle is tumultuous. I mean, we're constantly bombarding people with information and filing stories more than we ever have. I guess, frankly, this might not necessarily be a good thing, which is what Catherine alludes to. Carrie, what do you think? How do we find the right balance? Well, yeah, it's a big question. And I guess, like, I I come to it from a unique position because I you know, I have a, a great luxury in my job where I'm not required to file like every hour, like some journalists. Um, I've got a relatively long leash in that regard. And I, I know how fortunate I am to have that. And a lot of people don't. And it really is to the detriment of the reader. I mean, I think at, at the moment, you're seeing this enormous amount of duplication as well, where you have a flock of reporters all swarming towards the one story and then all sort of like rushing to bash it out. Um, and, you know, it just doesn't, to me, like I've always seen journalism, it's about finding out things that, you know, people don't necessarily want out there um, and finding out things that other people can't necessarily find out easily. 
Um, and I don't think that that kind of journalism really achieves either of those goals, especially then when you see sort of the flow on as well of other websites picking up that content that's been picked up at court or wherever um, and then basically plagiarising it um, and then distributing it to new audiences for money. So, um, yeah, I don't – I mean, I, I think it's um, a, like one of the biggest problems facing the industry. I was reading recently as well about I, – I think Catherine was sort of expressing it um, not wanting to look for sympathy, but, you know, journalists, it's sort of incredibly stressful um, environment to be working in. And I think a lot of journalists are heading towards burnout in that kind of environment as well. Yeah, she definitely, she alludes to the, we're kind of causing a fatigue in the industry. Josh, what do you think? I mean, do you think that this constant bombardment of content is actually losing the value of quality journalism? Yeah, I think it definitely does. Like, um it, that's a really broad question. <laughs> I, I guess this is like prol- uh, proliferation is what I'm looking for. Proliferation of say like live blogs and that sort of thing around. Um, a really good example would be live blogging Parliament, which the Guardian does, which uh, the Australian does, which a number of publications do. They basically live blog every single development of a story in Canberra. Um, and because that format, it sort of. Uh, necessitates that you have a new update every five minutes. Um, it means that, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it's really good that people who aren't in Canberra, if they're political junkies or whatever, they can, they can follow along on these developments and get, you know, a certain event uh, told through the eyes of a journalist they trust. It might be Catherine Murphy used to do the, the Guardian Life blog, um, and people would go to that blog and go, okay, I want to know what her take on this unfolding news event might be. It might be a certain vote around a certain issue. It might be some big scandal, blah, blah. But on the other hand, it the fact that you need to update that sort of thing every five minutes means that even small little, like, little events can get blown into a big story just for the fact that you've given that little, you know, some liberal backbencher has had a dummy spit on Sky News, he's given the same prominence as a massive big thing just happened. Um, so I think the fact that there is so much content out there, it, 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 number one, it sort of can blow small things out of proportion, but it's like, on the other hand, it can make big things kind of look small because, you know, a big story happens and then five minutes later, there's another story. And then five minutes later, there's another story. Um, so on that sort of hand, I think it does sort of dull journalism in a way because you know it, it, it how do you decide with so much out there how do you decide what's good and what's not and that's been an issue for with, for journalism for ages like you know you look at those old big you know old school newspapers that were like you know three feet long and there was five million stories in them so it was always an issue to kind of work out what was good and what was not but you know i just think now so many things are given the same prominence and you know everyone's tweet like you mentioned everyone's tweeting the same court story everyone's tweeting the same breaking news like you look at twitter and like after some big event like it's 15 journalists in a row on your feed all tweeting the exact same tweet um so it's it's a lot more about curation these days it's about you know, going to your audience and going like, what do you want to know? What do you actually care about? Because if, if you don't care about it, we won't give it to you. Um, and I think the fact that we can have these conversations with audiences now and actually go, you know, not just here's the, the big stories we need you to know. Here's the ones that we decided are important for you. Like the fact that you can go to your audience and say, look, what do you guys care about? If you don't care about court, we won't give you court. If you don't care about politics, we won't give you politics. If you don't care about energy, we won't give you energy. But if you do care about, uh, you know, industry or unions or about workplace issues will give you that sort of stuff so as with anything there's there's plus and there's minuses and i think there's more pluses in the internet age than there are minuses but there's a lot of crap out there you have to sort of sift through i suppose that's a double-edged sword as well because um in the back in the day obviously you're able to say to people you know 
this injustice here is important. We're going to put it on the front page, even if it's not necessarily what everyone's going to want to read straight away. Whereas now I think the curation on news websites is just pretty much 100% what's getting the most clicks goes at the top. Yeah, totally. So, But part of the issue is that, you know, I finished my university degree and we are told to, co- to constantly always make content. I mean, for journalists who have entered the industry 10 years ago, maybe that's all they really know what to do. Mm. They don't really know how to like step back because we are now told that we just have to constantly adhere to this sort of reporting. I don't know that, it's, that they don't know how to do it. No. They just don't know that they're assigned to mm. do it differently. Where do we go from here? Do we need to step back? I think we should all throw our phones in the bin. No, um, <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> I've been intrigued by some of the, let, let's say, some of the trends that I've seen and then also some of the tools that are available that perhaps we could make more of. Um, I logged on to the BBC app at the weekend and for the first time I saw something that said, you know, 10 things you need to know right now. Uh, which seemed to take account of the fact that it was morning in Australia and you can do that with an app. You know, here's the stuff you missed. And it went through the top stories and, you know, just gave a, this is where we're up to with this. And I thought that was a nice product, you know, as an app consumer. I thought, oh, that's, that's helpful because that stops me having to fish around the, the app for things that might, might or might not be useful. You know, and then there are tools like Twitter Moments, for example, that's been around for ages. And, you know, I'm seeing some news organisations using those more creatively to say, well, here's 10 stories that you should engage with and here are all the links. Or here's a tweet, uh, you know, a, a tweet storm, a, a series of tweet threads with links that will bring you up to date on the wider analysis around this issue that provides a differentiated product um, from, you know, what the rest, from, from the noise, let's say. Um, it's interesting too, Josh, what you said about your feed being full of journalists. So I almost exclusively follow digital innovators, future of news, think tanks, university mm. people. And so I'm not seeing actually as much news as I used to um, in my Twitter feed. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot more how do we do news. Yeah. So I think that's also something to be borne in mind is that we as journalists are also audience when it comes to consuming that content. Oh, totally. And with the sort of networks as well, like it's, it's such an innovation that you can curate your own feed, you know, like it's, you only follow the people that you, you want to follow. Like you don't, you don't have to follow a thousand journals if you don't want to, you can follow none, you can follow 10, you can follow only the Daily Telegraph, you can follow only Sky News, you can follow only 10 Daily if you want to. Um, so I think that's a real innovation. I think, I think people are still working out how best to, um, you know, take advantage of that in a in a kind of cynical sort of way like how do we as you know journalists we want the most people to read the most of our stories so that our publications get the most amount of money so we can you know continue to pay for our own jobs pay for our own journalists and pay for our own resources and you know travel places and buy equipment that we need and tell stories in interesting ways so i mean i think people are still working out exactly how to do this and the fact that we have this information now that journalists in past didn't have like we can break down if I want to look at one of my stories that I wrote today, and I can I can work out exactly how many people read it, how long they stayed on it for, exactly how far down the page they scrolled, how many people shared my story, how many people interacted with it, how many people passed it on to their friends and didn't read it, how many people just retweeted it and didn't even look at it. Like it's really interesting how the tools that we have now, um, and again, double edged sword sort of thing. It's like you know you can go down this rabbit hole of optimizing your content to within an inch of its life to work out exactly how it's gonna 
get the most amount of clicks in the shortest amount of time. But is that really the best story? Is that is that the best informative product for your readers? Is is that doing the best service to your audience? So I think one of the most in, most interesting and exciting things about the, the digital landscape is that we're twenty years into it now, really, and. Uh, you know, there, there will very soon come a time when age won't be won't have a relationship with digital innovation and propensity. Mm. And you know, I find that really exciting because at the moment, you know, a lot of the people that are aware of the metrics um, on stories are well, at least we, I think we're past the point where that was the most junior person in the newsroom. Although there was a period of time where that I think was the case. Um, but we are getting to a point, and we will increasingly do so, where the people who are in edit- editorial leadership positions will have come from a background. I mean, hopefully, as long as they keep their jobs long enough and they don't become too expensive to retain, mm. um, you know. But those people will also have um, editorial responsibility and be increasingly able to creatively work with what's understood about the audience, not just in terms of what gets covered, but how it gets covered, and have a moment to lift themselves from you know, the sausage factory of production to say, are we doing this, are we doing this in, in the most effective way, uh, in a way that makes our, our content stand out from the noise for the people who are trying to listen to it. Yeah. And I think, like, on that note, um, what was really encouraging with the whole uh, Thai cave rescue story was, like, the visualisations that some of the news organisations were coming out with and mm. um, the infographics and things, like, were pretty incredible. And it was so, like, just as someone that was following the story, um, not as a journalist but as a reader, it was great to be able to access that kind of thing. We, and it, it fitted a story like that so well. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk journalism, and I'm Evie Maguire. Channel 7's flagship current affairs program, Sunday Night, is facing a viewer-led boycott in response to a segment that aired last week which accused African gangs of wreaking havoc in Victoria. The report alleged that Melbourne has a serious problem with gang-related violence and that, quote, political correctness was holding police back from admitting to it. The reporter, Alex Cullen, said, quote, We live in such politically correct times. Police have been loath to admit there's even a problem, but there is. In response to this broadcast, critics on Twitter began using the hashtag NotMyAustralia and accused Channel 7 of race-baiting and simplifying a complex issue. Josh, I'll start with you. The Australian Labor Party Canterbury-Bankstown branch labelled this story as fake news and un-Australian. Do you agree? Um, I actually didn't watch it and I refused to watch it um, because I just think the way it was presented, the way it was advertised to start with was just so, uh, I think, abhorrent. Um, you know, it's like, oh, you know, the police won't do anything about it, blah, blah. Like, all this footage was from months and years ago. Like, it wasn't as though this is like, here's some up-to-date footage from the other week. Like, this is just them rehashing this old story that has got them a lot of clicks and a lot of views and a lot of, you know, traffic and that sort of thing. Um, just, like, reheating it for, for absolutely no reason. Um, and, I, you know, I, I didn't watch it, but I read a lot of reporting around it afterwards and people writing opinion pieces and wrap-ups and that sort of thing. So I know exactly how it went down and it's exactly how a lot of people thought it would go down. Um, it was just, you know, scary African gangs and the police weren't doing anything, blah, blah. Like, it, it's not political correctness that, that stopped the police from labelling them gangs. Like, they, he actually had the police, uh, you know, the, the police chief or some senior police officer on there saying, look, 
yes, there's a crime problem here, and yes, these people are committing crimes, but we're not calling them gangs because they don't fit the definition of a gang. It's the same as saying, like, you know, why don't we say that there was a uh, a gang of, uh, you know, like white guys out there killing their wives in the last couple of weeks? Like, you know, yes, they there was a bunch of white guys out there killing their wives, but we don't call them a gang because they weren't affiliated. Um, and, uh, you know, the last time this story reared its ugly head, there was all these stats that came out and said, you know, yes, the members of the African community in those parts of Melbourne are employed at lower levels than, than other nationalities and that sort of thing, but they're actually committing crimes at lower levels than most other um, demographics. And if you wanted to look at any sort of demographic, if you wanted to pull out people from, you know, Eastern Europe or people from South America or people from, you know, North America, whatever it was, I'm sure you could find any sort of stats. It's just they've decided to focus on African gangs because it clicks really well. Um, and I, I think it was really very poor. Carrie, obviously we have to cover issues of crime and race, but what's the correct way to go about it? Well, for me, any any story like that always has to have a base, basis in like statistics. Like that, to me, is just journalism 101. Something has to have happened for you to do a story about it. So, yes, if the, you know, Sudanese crime rate in Melbourne has exploded 50%, well, yep, you'll do a story about it. But um, I don't even think, like, as Josh said, I don't even think there was any sort of basis, in fact, to sort of instigate that story in the first place. Do you think that there was any public interest in the story? Um, well, well uh, in, like, in terms of justification for doing it, um, well, no, like, I, like, like, what I'm saying, like, I just think that, um, unless something has actually happened, like, there's been an increase in the crime rate, that there's, you know, no real public interest in doing a story like that. The thing you have to ask is 50% of what? You know, what is 50%? If, if, if you know, a 50% increase might be four as opposed to two. Yeah. Mm. Corrine, did you have do you have any thoughts on the the resistance hashtag Not My Australia? I mean, I read it and I thought it was quite a broad statement. Do you think that it could maybe affiliate to a larger ideological debate about racism in Australia? No, not really. I mean, well, kind of. I've got really strong similar similar views, I think, to to Josh about the segment. Um, I mean, I've lived myself as a migrant in the UK, so I have a personal experience of adopting another country as a as a second home. And I know what it's like to have some people welcome me and others pe- other people resenting me being there. So, you know, personally, I feel a, a sense of <clears throat> shared lived experience with our migrant communities. And I've also lived in Melbourne. You know, I lived there all of last year. I lived there from 2007 to 12, working for the ABC. And, you know, I'm about to move back there to work at the University of Melbourne in, in a week or so. So my lived experience of Melbourne is not the picture painted by Channel 7. You know, I'm not disputing the figures uh, you know, as they are understood by the police. But then those figures are also six months old. The ABC covers this in a in a very measured way at the beginning of the year, um, you know, looking at what the reasons might be for this, looking at why Victoria Police has issues with, with describing this behaviour as gang behaviour. Um, you know, so anyway, strong views. Um, but re- regarding hashtag not my Australia, my, my take on this is an old hacks take, right? Because... It's an old journalistic strategy to report bad news because if it bleeds, it leads. So bad news sells newspapers. And if you put out a bad news story in the digital environment and in a way that will polarise communities, then you'll get more bad news that you can continue to report on. People will take sides. People will have a hashtag. You know, celebrities and notables will come out in favour either way about this. 
Um, people might hold, you know, if you're very lucky, people might, people might have a protest that shuts down in central Melbourne. Um, they might engage in reprisal attacks. So, you know, bad news sells. I, I, at the same time, I don't know any journalist that wants any of that on their conscience. So what I want to see is, you know, when we're talking about how do we approach reporting race, um, you know, in this country, in this environment, it's got to be accurate. It's got to reflect, reflect official statistics and lived experience. It's got to resist the temptation to sensationalise. And we have to live with the fact that that might make the news less interesting to watch because life is not high drama with a soundtrack. It's get up, it's get the kids ready for school, it's go to work, it's come home, eat dinner, go to bed. That's actually what life is mm. like for most of us. No, I, I totally agree. and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I just think it's really irresponsible. I mean, like, you know, it was bad enough that Channel 7 was one of the outlets that sort of led this whole Melbourne gangs, you know, African gangs and, they're, you know, raping your wives and all that sort of stuff, like, a few months a ago. Story. Why isn't everybody covering it? That, I mean, that, we've just been exact, talking about how there's that's this, exactly, a journalist covering the same That's story. exactly yeah. it. So, so, you know, like, these, this is a massive story a few months ago, then it settled down, and, you know, there, it was bad enough that first time around, there was, you know, people reporting, you know, like, like members of the African community community reporting, you know, racist attacks on them and all that sort of stuff, and, you know, the, the story died down, and, you know, I I, I don't live in Melbourne. I've never really visited Melbourne that much. I don't really know many people who live in Melbourne. But, like, from the reporting, it seems like, you know, that sort of whole furor died down. And out of the blue, they've gone, oh, remember the African gangs? Yeah, they're still a big deal. I'm going to do another story on them. Like, just sort of to stoke this up out of absolutely nowhere. Like, this footage was months old. It wasn't as though it was like, oh, yeah, sorry, guys. In the last three weeks, there's been all these secret attacks you didn't know about. It was just like, oh, yeah, remember that thing six months ago? Here's a, rev- here's a repeat of that. I mean, like, and I get totally your point about if it bleeds, it leads. But, like, it's not as though there's any shortage of bad news in this world. Like, if they really wanted to, you know, get their viewers up or get their ratings up or whatever it is, for whatever cynical reason, like, you know, a bunch of women were killed in the last couple of weeks in Australia. Like, do a story on that. Like, there's a bunch of refugees sitting in our prison camps offshore and they're having a bad time. Just yeah, I that. think it's more like, that, like, if the right person here. bleeds, then it leads. That's you it, know exactly, what I mean? yeah. I mean, like, there's, yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's no shortage of bad news in this world if they really wanted to get deep into the crime stories. Like, find someone else to pick on, you know? Like, I think, like, what's disappointing to me in all of this, and it's sort of... Um, strikes me as similar to the whole David Lionhelm debacle last Mm. week um, in that, you know, you seem to have these people that are willing to exploit, um, you know, basically targeting a a disempowered group, whether that be, you know, women that have experienced sexual harassment or, um, you know, uh, Sudanese children in Melbourne. They're sort of targeting that group uh, for their own um, gain, whether that be like ratings or for David Lionhelm, whether that be votes. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, they know that they're doing that. It's it's quite deliberate that they're doing that. And, you know, the fact that it outrages a broad section of the community, I don't think they really care because at the end of the day, they're still getting the ratings or they're still getting the votes out of it. And that's the goal. So, I, I mean, mm. I find that quite sad. Moving on, another week, another ABC drama. This week, Fairfax Media has accused the ABC of threatening the sustainability of commercial news journalism. Fairfax has come out and said that the ABC's decision to compete on online news journalism has attracted potential paying customers away from commercial news outlets and is, quote, not in keeping with the spirit of ABC's original charter. Now, Carrie, you work in Fairfax Media. Do you think that the ABC should be charging people for their content? And do you, yeah, do you agree with this argument? 
Um, I have to say, I know this is probably going to be an unpopular opinion. I was actually having a conversation uh, about it a few weeks ago. And I said, like, as a commercial, like, you know, news journalist, I absolutely agree because, I, you know, it's incredibly frustrating to think that, to me, the whole idea of paywalls is never going to work while people can still get that content for free. And I do find it extremely frustrating that people expect to be able to receive news content for free. Um, it's almost like this given entitlement um, with Australian audiences. Um, and they don't seem to really grasp that, you know, to, to generate a, a sort of significant news story or, you know, a big investigation takes an incredible amount of time and resources. I mean, Fairfax just you know, invested um, money in paying for me to go overseas to pursue an investigation. Um, it came out over three days and then, you know, the, the news cycle takes over and it's over. Um, but they did it because they believed in quality journalism. Um, and so to me, it's just really sad that, you know, there are organisations still willing to invest in quality journalism, but, you know, Facebook and Google and all that are taking the revenue and we can't seem to, you know, get paywalls to work successfully in Australia. Well, Josh, you work at um, 10 Daily and it doesn't have a paywall. No. Do you think that ABC's free online news platform is disadvantaging your website? To a point, it does. But at the same time, I still think the ABC, the way they do the news, I think is a public good. Um, I You look at their uh, programs like Four Corners and, um, you know, Late Line and those sort of things, um, they they break massive stories. They break stories that are massively in the public interest that, you know, and consistently they beat commercial news organisations. And I get exactly what you're saying around, you know, Fairfax has to, you know, they're at a disadvantage because they have to pay for all that sort of stuff and they're not getting taxpayer funds and that sort of thing. But at the same time, like, I think the fact that the ABC does what they do is a net positive for Australia. I understand the issue around... You know, how can uh, an organization like Fairfax or like Channel 10 or any other commercial site or channel or whatever compete against a $1 billion publicly funded organization? And that's fair enough. Um, I think that sometimes perhaps maybe the ABC has gone a bit too far in their remit. Maybe they don't need to do as much, say, lifestyle content. Like, I'm not sure that they need to be kind of chasing those sort of clicks on, you know, here's this great new crazy viral food burger thing that they do sometimes. Like, I'm not sure that's really in the public interest for people to know that. But, you know, I think they should be doing the news. I think people have the right to access the news um, for free um, if they want it. Um and I think it's better that we have this in our country than other countries that don't have a big public broadcaster like the ABC. I think it's I think it's good that Australians can get this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think the thrust of the submission was sort of saying, like, obviously no one's going to say people shouldn't be able to access a Four Corners show or something. Mm. Um, I think the thrust of the submission was particularly that sort of run-of-the-mill journalism where people can get every, anywhere. Um, you know, if, That's if fair enough, yeah. everyone has a paywall except the ABC, then obviously people are going to go to the ABC for that. But it's not just the ABC that doesn't have a paywall. I mean, it's easy to get free news. You've got The Guardian, the BBC online, you've got um, news.com. Do you think that the ABC is being singled out a bit here? I think they're being yeah. singled out generally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Corrine, what do you think? Well, I, I work for both the ABC and Fairfax. Um, you know, so I thought, I thought about this question um, I, I decided to approach it from the point of view of a consultant because I run my own business, you know. I'm responsible for making my consultancy um, profitable or going under. And I've got competitors who offer what I do 
for free um, for things that I would normally charge for. And I had an instance where one of those competitors was, in fact, publicly funded. It was the BBC Academy. This was in the UK. Um, the Academy made a lot of its training material, materials open source a couple of years ago. And it's pertinent, actually, to mention that they did so because they were under pressure from commercial media outlets to demonstrate the value of the BBC. And so that happened. And the irony um, was that I was a British taxpayer at the time. So my taxes were effectively paying a direct competitor to put me out of a job, mm -hmm. right? So one has to ask, in a, in a market economy, is it valid for me? It's, it's obviously it's valid for me to grumble about disruptions to my business, but the BBC isn't the only source of free online training or the only competitor. So, you know, there's, there are different ways of approaching that. One is to say, well, I'm going to diversify, which I did. And I think when we look at Fairfax, and I've, you know, when I joined Fairfax, one of the attractions to me of working there was that the sound of the newspaper hitting the front fence when I was a kid was the sound of the news arriving. So I'm, you know, very emotionally invested in, in Fairfax and its survival. Um, it carries touched on this that, the disruption to the business model is in large part down to the loss of advertising revenue to the whole of the digital ecosystem. So, you know, and arguably people have already paid for the ABC through their taxes. So, you know, one, I, I just would like to see the conversation move a little bit beyond the habit that I think we've got into because we've had 20 years of cuts of thinking when we talk about competition, when we talk about a healthy, sustainable, robust, journalism ecosystem in this country that it necessarily means fighting over the scraps of whatever is left of a business model that's busted you know and perhaps looking at, at different ways of doing this now I don't know if you guys know but you know earlier this year the BBC launched uh, the local news partnership so that's a shared data unit with regional and local publishers in the United Kingdom where everyone has access to certain kinds of content and data around it um, you know, Google News Initiative has funded uh, an organisation called Bureau Local, which brings together journalists from regional outlets that wouldn't have the resources to do investigative journalism on their own. Some of these outlets are competitors with each other um, to produce content on a range of issues that go across geographic borders. And then, you know, we can also look across Pacific to New Zealand, where the industry as a whole is under such pressure that pooling of resources is actually by default has become fairly standard because people just don't, you know, well, you go cover that and I'll go cover this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there are, there are different ways, I think, of approaching this. And I just, I just wish that this wasn't framed the way that it is currently. I mean, you know, the review will play out, um, but what I'm hoping from, from the review is a good outcome for the industry as a whole. Well, speaking of the review, it came out last week that Turnbull government's review of the ABC and SBS efficiencies will be headed by former News Corp executive Peter Tonner and former Australian Communications and Media Authority Chairman Richard Bean. Now, just to re reiterate, Peter is a former News Corp and Foxtel CEO. Josh, should the ABC be worried? Um, I think they have reason to be worried based on uh, previous efficiency reviews and previous um, policy of the government around the ABC. Um, I think the ABC uh, is a very easy uh, punching bag for Liberal governments to sort of lay into. I think I read something the other day that every Liberal government for the last 20 years or 30 years or something had done an, a review into the ABC, um, which I think is kind of 
telling, I guess. You know, it's the one kind of news organization that the government has control over. So, you know, if they don't like the stories, what are they going to do? Like, you know, Firefield has written half a dozen letters to the ABC in the last couple of months about stories he doesn't like. Like, he's just like he's their pen pal or something. It's... I think it's part of his daily routine now. Yeah, it's um to, to your question about whether they should be worried. I think you know they should be worried because you know look what's happened in the last budget. Like you know they're trying to frame it as oh it's not a cut to funding, it's just a freeze of funding. But essentially it's a cut because it's not it's not um their funding's not being indexed over the next couple of years. Um, where at the same time you know you, uh, you see these graphics that are shared around now and like the it. it compares uh, the funding the ABC get today um, to the funding they got, you know, years ago in real terms. And it's about the same in real terms. But now the ABC, you know, 20 years ago, they might have just done uh, TV and radio. And now they're doing online and radio and TV and hourly broadcast on the 24-hour news, 24 news channel and all this sort of all this massive amount of this explosion of content they're putting out with essentially the same resources. So I think the government wants them to keep doing that. But... They just, you know, want them to cut back on certain things. Well, Carrie, I mean, do you think that maybe, on the other hand, I'm joining the dots too quickly? Um, I probably tend to err more on the side of what Josh was saying. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think it's sort of alarming in the context. Like, as, as much as what I said before, like, with my Fairfax hat on, um, like, you know, it, it is disappointing to have seen, you know, this whole saga with, um, you know, journalists there like Emma Alberici being attacked and um, their programming coming under attack. Like, obviously, they do a lot of great work. I mean, like, personally, I think any efficiency review, um, you know, going as far as maybe, like, spending less on SEO, like, I personally don't believe they should be spending huge amounts of money on things like SEO. Then Facebook promoting and that sort of thing. That's a really good point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like directing maybe more resources towards um, undercovered stories that haven't, uh, that are worthy, but maybe don't receive the attention that they deserve from the commercial media. But certainly in terms of cuts, like I was working up in Newcastle and the newsroom up there was sort of gutted in the last round of cuts. So to think that they're going to be stripped of even more funding, I mean, you really wonder, you know, how far they can cut to the bone. Like, Corrine, do you think that the review's necessary? It's so I'm I'm trying to think of positives because I you know mm-hmm. I I think we've we've identified some of the potential risks. It's always useful I think to have an opportunity if it is presented as an opportunity to think about how can we do what we do better, um, you know, and in the way that the digital landscape is at the moment, it's you know that's that's never a bad thing, right? Um, but if we're talking about is there any fat, you know? Is there any fat left to cut? Um, you know, we'd be we're beyond that. We've been beyond that for a long time. We have hit gravel, um, and I say we as a as a former ABC person and you know someone who you know knows a lot of people there, former colleagues and so on. Um, when I I'll give you an example, when I last worked at the ABC in 2012, the night shift at ABC Radio Australia was a solo operation, right? So that was one person covering the Asia-Pacific region for radio bulletins, online and social. You ate at your desk and you ran to the bathroom. So, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's what, what can be achieved from a review that's, that's slated efficiency, it does sound like it will be more cuts. And, you know, from, from an Australian point of view, as, you know, speaking as an Australian who loves Australian journalism, who loves, you know, hearing about Australian stories, that's a collective loss. And I think, you know, where we lose programs, where we lose outlets, where we lose jobs, where we lose journalists, 
uh, we should mourn that collectively because I don't think it would, I don't think we're better off as a country when that happens. And as, well, I, I mean, I suppose on that note, that's where I find it really hard to understand how the organisation could be spending money boosting Facebook posts or, um, you know, uh, SEO yeah. uh, boosting because it, it does really seem as though the journalists are getting squeezed so much on the front line. So, you know, you wonder if it's a question of um, management priorities higher up. I don't know. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting point. And, you know, I mean, there's there are two things to talk about there because one is Facebook and one is Google. And I think the Facebook algorithm change at the beginning of the year, which is all about people spending more time with advertisers on Facebook, if you're not sponsoring or promoting your content on Facebook, the simple reality is it is less likely to be seen. Um, you know, by it's, you know, some some outlets like Slate have recorded a, you know a factor of ten fall in reach and engagement. Google, you know, I think a, a different sort of case has to be made for spending on Google. But Facebook, if you're not if you're not spending on there, you are effectively invisible. But I mean, everyone so, everyone knows. So maybe how. there's a question around, and you know, I think that's a question that all media outlets. This is kind of off topic, um, Evie, but you know, it's a question that all media outlets need to be asking is. You know, are, are we going to continue to invest in a Facebook presence into 2019? But that's that's another show. Mm. Josh, you yeah, to- I mean, like I, I I totally agree there, and I you know I get the ABC wants to have their stories in front of more eyes and that sort of thing. But like you know, everyone knows how to reach the ABC's website. I mean, like that. I don't think. I mean, I, no, okay. Mm. I, I have kind of a complicated opinion on this. Um, I think there is immensely a case for the ABC to exist and to do news and to do as much news as possible in as many interesting ways as possible. Um, for for you know this idea of the public good for public interest and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I don't think we should be shoving it down people's throats. I mean, there's a way to do the news and tell people about what's going on and keep Australians informed through a government-funded news agency um, without them having to dominate Facebook, having, having to dominate Twitter, having to dominate YouTube and all these other social platforms and that sort of thing. I mean, there's a balance you can strike between giving people the news and you know giving people an opportunity to be, make themselves informed but without, you know, at the same time, totally dominating other, you know, Fairfax and News Corp and that sort of thing. I mean, like, I don't think they should be spending massive amounts of money on Facebook promotion. I don't think they should, should be spending massive, massive amounts of money on SEO keywords and that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a balance you can strike there without, you know, give people the news but don't ram it down their throats, I think is kind of the, the point I'm trying to make. Sound like Catherine Murphy. <laughs> and I think like what else, like the other side of it that's frustrating to me is I, f- I feel like it's sort of this insidious thing in the entire media industry, whether or not you're public or private, is that we're all you know in this race to attract uh, Facebook um, audiences and to have our posts do well and get you know more likes and more shares. And that's really, I mean, at the end of the day, what are we seeing for it? Because you know, ninety percent of the revenue generated is going to Facebook. There, you know, so in terms of the industry's struggle to survive, and like it was said before, we're in a fight for our life, and yet the the entire focus of every organisation at the moment just seems to be more Facebook likes, and I don't know that that's the answer. Well, on that note, we're going to have to finish the show today, but that's it from us on Fourth Estate today. Thank you to my guests Josh Butler from Ten Daily. Carrie Fellner from the Sydney Morning Herald and Corinne Podger, digital and mobile journalism lecturer at Melbourne University. Next week, Peter Frey will be back in the host seat. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Facebook is Fourth Estate AU. I'm Evie Maguire. Thank you for listening.